Hey, this is Denny Tedesco, the director of The Wrecking Crew and Media Family, and you are listening to Robert Miller and his Follow Your Dream podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Don Randy, a legendary keyboard player and one of the charter members of the Wrecking Crew, the West Coast group of studio musicians who were the unsung heroes on so many hit records of the 1960s. Don played on hundreds of records that became the soundtrack of our lives, including Good Vibrations and Help Me Rhonda by the Beach Boys. These boots are made for walking by Nancy Sinatra. Different Drum by Linda Ronstadt and the Stone Ponies, to name just a few of the hundreds of hit records that he played on. His exploits with his colleagues were captured in Denny Tedesco's wonderful documentary called The Wrecking Crew. And as you know, in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, Don and I are going to do a song fest where we're going to play a handful of these great songs that he participated in, and we're going to talk about them, and you're going to get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And as you also know, in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guests. And in this instance, I've chosen a song that I wrote called My Baby. I chose it because it's a 60s kind of rollicking song with a piano lead, just like so many songs that Don Randy played on. So Don Randy, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. My pleasure, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Denny told me all about you. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it also. I always wanted to meet one of the guys from the Wrecking Crew. I mean, what you guys did was so famous, was so iconic in the music industry. And, you know, it always bothered me that for so long, there was never any credit given. Did that bother you at the time? It, it did in the very beginning, but Brian Wilson and Phil Spector did it first. From the get-go, they, they started putting people's names on it. And, and they were independent producers. And that forced the, the corporate producers like Capital and Warner Brothers and the rest of them to start doing it also. But they were the first, they were innovative, you know, and they also demanded union contracts. How about that? You know, it just, it bothers me. Why wouldn't the other producers or the record companies, why did they want to keep your names off of it? Was it to carry on the illusion that these groups were playing? Absolutely. That was it. You you nailed it. Most of the kids, you know, listen, Dino, Desi, and Billy, they got three hits. Lee Hazelwood was the producer. They they were pitchers. They were they were six years old, seven years old. They they couldn't play, so it was us. You know, a lot of the bands with with like the monkeys, 
they couldn't really play, so they had to bring in the studio guys. They learned how to play because they went on tour, and and they had a teachers come in. They were actors basically, and uh, they learned how to play. So many of those the younger younger bands just couldn't do it, and the producers, especially the corporate guys, that were they had to bring in three or four songs in three hours. And they had to have musicians that were capable of doing that. And they would hire us because we could do that. We all read, we were all, all had a great jazz background, most of the guys. So the ad lib part was there. And when you work for a lot of them, the producers didn't know how to verbalize what they wanted. So they counted on us to help them as much as we could. And we did, that was our job. That's why we work so much. We could understand what they didn't know. <laughs> let's put it that uh, way. <laughs> so let's set this up. So somebody would come in with a song for an artist. Would they have it all orchestrated for you? Would they have it all, you know, set up? Or did they just say, here's the idea. Now you guys take it from there. Both of those. Sometimes you would go in and most of the time it was chord sheets. And maybe like an approach to what to do. But the rest of it was we made it up as we went along. A lot of times the songwriters didn't know how to write music. So we would hear it and somebody else would do it and and, and sketch it down. You know who was great at that when we were a singer-songwriter? Glenn Campbell, because he didn't read, but his ears, he was elephant ears. And he would get the chord changes before everybody else. He said, no, 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 do that, do that. It was this one. He didn't know it. He could verbalize it. But he couldn't write it down or, or or read it, but he he could hear it quickly, and that was a big help, you know, a lot of times. But some of the hit songs like "You've Lost That Love and Feeling" that was all written out, that was arranged, that was a, an incredible arrangement too on that. Not only the chords, but the notes would be written out the the entirety of the arrangement. The orchestrations were written out, like for 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 me. It was chords, and and I knew what they wanted on that song, and I knew what to play. And it's it's Phil Spector, and generally with Phil, you ended up to play the same sixteenth notes sometimes for eight hours or nine hours, and the same thing for the guitars, and then there were four four piano players doing the same thing, and one up on the upper upper octave in the middle, two on the bottom maybe one on an electric piano, one on an upright piano, especially at Gold Star. And that was the wall of sound. That's how he became famous. Before the Wrecking Crew, we were known as the wall of sound. The wall of sound was multiple instruments playing the same parts, if you will. Absolutely. That's that. That's perfect explanation of it. I see. Okay, that is interesting because, you know, he really explained how he got that wall of sound. Now we know. Oh, and and it's it's amazing because uh, I mean guys like Barney Kessel, famous jazz guy, Howard Roberts, Tommy Tedesco, Dennis Budimir, all these guys that were incredible guitar players. Russ Teitelman, who became a famous producer, playing rhythm guitar and learning everything from Phil, watching and listening. And can you imagine holding your fret fingers on the frets, doing one song for nine hours? And the only guy that ever walked out was Howard Roberts. He said, Phil, I can't do this anymore. My hand is cramped. I have other gigs I have to go to. 
<laughs> and he got up and walked. Yeah. <laughs> I was always wondering whether or not, you know, you guys would basically run through a song once or twice and that would be it. You'd capture it within those couple of takes. But you're now describing a process where you were there for nine hours on one song. So how did it go? Was it both ways? You know what? I think Phil, when he did it, he was waiting for the the feeling to be right besides the song to be right. He he would play, he wouldn't let Hal Blaine play Phil's when on when till the very end, when we were getting near the end, and he says, Okay, then you knew we were starting to make the record. Because Hal started to play Phil's on on the outro, so to speak. Hal Blaine being one of the great drummers of this whole era. Yeah, he and incidentally, he got a star in the sidewalk in Palm Springs this past Monday, and it was a fantastic day. They they really for a musician. Here is Lauren Bacall, Mickey Rooney, these famous people with stars, and there's a musician, Hal Blaine, getting a star in the sidewalk. And close to 300 people showed up and we went. And after that, we played. I had my, my son and my daughter and a couple other singers that came in and we did all the hits for an hour and a half. And the people were going crazy, you know. Fantastic. For anybody that doesn't know, OK, the, the song that I think Hal Blaine is most known for is that beat that he came up with on Be My Baby. Am I right? That's it. Absolutely. He he made his whole life on that. I used to kid him. I said, if you hadn't have played that, no would no one would have hired you. You know, we were very close friends for for many many years. Well, listen, all of you guys. I mean, you you were probably together almost every day. This whole group that you're talking about. Am I right? That is so true. Uh, um, well, for Phil Spector, we did 21 million selling records in a row. Unbelievable. So if you were a producer, who are you going to hire? Let's get those guys that are making hit records because we could come through with it. And, you know, it, it was so much fun, Rob, in, in the early days because so many times someone would make a mistake. And the producer, oh, who did that? Do that again. And that all of a sudden becomes part of the record. And, and you go in that direction. And it happened over and over and over again because we were playing basically ad-lib stuff on chords. And and you the possibility for that hap to happen was there, and it did, more times than not. So you're making all these records starting in the early '60s. Did you have any idea that they were going to last as long as they have? No way. And, and 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 you know people say what's your favorite song and what's all of this. You know what it was, Rob. We had families to support. Right. That was our job. I mean, we could have been a plumber, we could have been a fireman, anything. This was our job. You're making a living. And we would go in every day. I, I, I'll i tell you what, one week, it's embarrassing to even say it, I did 26 different recording sessions. And I wrote arrangements for four of those. And that's how busy we were, day and night. From 1963, I would say, for me, it went up to almost to 1980. A lot of the guys stopped in the 70s, but I kept right on going. And then to, to this very day, you know, here I am, it's, it's it's 2023, and they still hire me. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So I'm interested. Did they pay you for the session? Did they pay you for each song? 
And was it a union kind of a thing? Did you get royalties at some point? We get residuals now because of us having the union contracts. One of my favorite stories is, is Elvis Presley. You're going to love this one. We're, we're in, in doing a, some of the songs he did in those films were horrific. They were terrible. And <laughs> some of them were, you know, they, they, they were pretty good. And we were doing a date. I, I can't remember which film it was right now, but Billy Strange and Mac Davis were the composers on the film for this film, uh, for most of the songs. And the producer comes over the soundtrack and says, I need one more song. You guys shorted me. We, we, we need another song for this one. And they said, well, we didn't write it. Well, you, we need it. So the guys said, take a 10-minute break. We take a 10-minute break. We come back. Billy and, and Mac are trying to scribble something out. They still don't have it. We take another 10-minute break. And then another 10-minute break. And finally, they come back with a few chords on a sheet and a possibility. That's all it was. And Hal and I are sitting there. Glenn Campbell was the guitar player on it. I think Ray Pullman might have been the bass player. I can't remember right now. Or Carol Kay. It could have been Carol. We start screwing around, and Hal says, all right, I'll play this little intro. And I said, I'm going to wait and come in here, but let's change that from that minor chord you have. Let's make it a major and re reverse. And that's how it went back and forth. And the next thing you know, we have a song called A Little Less Conversation. That's how it all happened. There wasn't a song. And because that was in the, a union contract for the film and for the record, initially we got paid $162. And over the years, we've made, I guess, what is it, 40 years now? We've made close to $10,000 in residuals because of the reuses over and over. Somebody uses it in a commercial. Somebody uses it here. But had that not been a contract, if, if a movie company or a company can get away with it, they will, believe me. If they don't have to pay, they won't pay. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. But, you know, it's almost sad that $162 for that kind of creativity and that kind of genius, okay? Today, that that would be a lot more. And, and you know, once we started making the hits, they knew if they wanted to get us, we became what they call double scale. Whatever it was, we always got double. If it was like 160 we got 300 Way, way back then, and and it, that helped a lot. You know, it really did. We didn't get it every time, but a lot of the times. From my perspective, you should have gotten the hundred thousand scale. Okay, <laughs> you guys were it. You guys created so much wonderful music. I know that you didn't call yourselves the Wrecking Crew at that time. The story that I've heard is that Hal Blaine came up with the name. Is that true? You know what? I think it's it's a possibility. Yeah, they always said. In the beginning, all those guys that were there were the Suits guys. They, they were the studio guys. And all, here comes a bunch of rock and rollers, you know, jazz guys that they smoked in the sessions. They did all this kind of different, you know, it wasn't the same. And they said they're going to wreck the business. Is, is that, that's how it started. And then Hal said, yeah, well, we're the, we're the wrecking crew, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, it's a name that became iconic with everybody. They jumped on it. I mean, everybody just loved that name, and you can't beat it. <laughs> it's a brilliant name, really. It captured everything. It really did. It did. All right. So the movie that has come out, the Denny's movie, which is a great, great movie, tell us about your participation in that. Well, 
he, I, I was able to add a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, stuff like we're talking about, but also uh, bringing Nancy Sinatra into it too. You know, he hadn't got her. And, you know, we're very close, Nancy and I have always been. And she said, I'm not doing it, I'm doing it unless Don Randy's sitting next to me. And that's how that, that all started. So um, she's she's always been amazing. And she's always been a part of that whole rock and roll scene and not getting enough credit for it because she actually, when you think about it, did the first woman's lib song. These boots are made for walking. And she had a fight with Lee Hazelwood over that. He didn't want her to do it. He said, this is a guy song. And she says, no way. And you know, the baseline, you're gonna love this one, Rob. Yeah, 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 I know. It's a famous, famous baseline there. You know, and he's a, an incredible bassist. He played the, from symphony to jazz to, to swing. He's played with everyone. He says, no matter who, he, he was doing a Michelle Legrand date one day, and Michelle made him play the, the bass line. So I got to hear it one time. And he has to do it over and over again because it became, you know, that was the, the hit part of that record. Uh, he did it on the upright bass, didn't he? That's right. It was a, a upright bass. And, uh, you know, originally, uh, the first time I heard it, it was on a guitar doing that, sliding down the guitar, doing it with one. I think Lee Hazelwood might have even done it himself. And and Chuck heard something like that, but then he did, did it on the bass and it blew Lee Hazelwood away. I mean, that, that was it. That was so, so cool. Everything else didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician, in addition to being the host of this podcast. With my band, Project Grand Slam, I've released 12 highly acclaimed albums, including Trippin', which went to number one on Billboard. And we've got millions of video views and streams. My latest album, is called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It's been called Album of the Year by Indie Shark. I released this album in a novel way via five episodes of this podcast. And I'm pleased to say that those episodes have been downloaded over 50,000 times in more than 130 countries. I invite you to listen to the album. It's available on Spotify, and all the other streaming services. And I also invite you to check out all the episodes of this Follow Your Dream podcast. I've had so many amazing, famous musicians and others as guests on the show, all of whom have followed their dream to success. The episodes are fun and entertaining, and we must be doing something right because the podcast is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. How about that? So every episode is like taking a world tour. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails 
which keep you up to date on everything. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, let's go to the second part of this interview where we're going to do some of the songs that you participated in in the song fest. The first one we're playing right now underneath is Different Drum, which was by Linda Ronstadt when she was with the Stone Ponies. Absolutely. Written by Mike Nesmith of the Monkees. Not too many people know that. You had the coolest part of that song. Tell us about that. Oh, that, you're going to love this one, Rob. <laughs> I walk into the studio, and there's this wonderful harpsichord there. They brought in a harpsichord for the date. It was at Capitol Records. And I walked over to Nick Vinay, the producer, and I said, who's playing that? He said, well, you are. I said, really? And then I start to panic. I said, if they wrote out some Bach part or whatever it's going to be, I, I, I better see the music. I said, do you have the music? He said, no, not yet. The arranger hadn't arrived. And we started with another song where I was playing piano. And Linda's two guitar players that were with her were incredible. They were in her band, the Stone Ponies. They did the, uh, where they put the metal picks on the fingers and do that folk picking. It was It was great to even watch them. It was mesmerizing. So we did a couple of songs. And now it comes up. They pass out the part for the sound of a different drum. And I get it and I look at it and I start to laugh. And for years I've been called from, from schools to explain the harpsichord part, thinking that every, every note was written. The whole thing that I played those solos on my music said, rock and roll Bach style with chords. <laughs> That's exactly what, it, and I made up the whole part as we did it, it was ad lib. That whole Bach part thing that I play is totally ad lib. And it, it became so, people would call me, we need to get that harpsichord specialist. <laughs> Rock and roll style Bach. I love that. I love that. And you know what? The bass player did the arrangement, Jimmy Bond. He was also a great bass player, but he did the arrangement on that. It was a great song. Okay. Oh, it, was. it was a great song. In no particular order, let's do uh, You've Got That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers, 1964. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. There's no tenderness like grief in your fingertips. Tell us about that one. Oh, my goodness. That was... An amazing session. I think Gene Page might have been the arranger on that one. I can't remember. I don't think Jack did that one. I think it was Gene. And a great drummer. It wasn't Hal. Everybody thinks Hal played that one. It was Earl Palmer that did the You've Lost That Love and Feeling. And uh, it was just from the get-go, that one you knew. 
I heard a little bit back, and I love the, the Righteous Brothers, Bobby and Billy. I, I've known them for years. As we were doing it, I said, oh, my goodness, you got that feeling of how strong that was going to be. Uh, and and just hearing back the track, my God, it was two of the great voices to a, a great group. And to be part of that was I, I, I knew it from the first note sitting down to play and there was only one or two piano players on that one. It wasn't like four or five of us. He did the wall of sound on that one, too. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. All right. Well, a fantastic record. It was. It stood the test of time. All the things that we're talking about here, they've all stood the test of time. That had a great lyric, too. That's true. You know, whereas, whereas my, my favorite, not non, the most non-lyrical number one record, the Duran Run. I met him on a Saturday. The Duran Run. The Duran Run. The Duran Run. <laughs> You don't think that that had a message to it, huh? <laughs> you, there was, you know, that that was the fun part of those. You know, you didn't know. I mean, the first record I heard when I was in my car was "He's a Rebel," and I'm driving home, and I hear that. I said, "Oh my God, I played on that!" It was such a wonderful feeling. A lot of the guys didn't give a shit. You know, they they would say, "Yeah, it's baloney, it's rock and roll." I loved it. I, I I just adored the, the whole the whole system of putting it together and having the singers come in and all that. I, it was always interesting to me. And until this very day, it's always been been like that. Well, also, they were great songs and they made you feel good. Yes. Yes. Th there you go. L lyrically, they were a lot better than a lot of the songs. Hey, the, the Beach Boys, God Only Knows. One of the great songs of all time. God only knows what I'd be without you. What'd you play on that one? I played Hammond B3 and, and piano on that one. But there's a great uh, scene. Uh, well, Brian and I get in an argument. Back and forth, he he didn't like the the way of one part of the song was going. There's a middle part where he had it really legato and ba and we I said Brian, do it short, do it staccato, and he said no no no. I said try it. No, he said I said try it one time, and finally he did it, and that's the way it ended up on the record. He took my advice. I always wanted to know who played the sleigh bells on that one. <laughs> it might have been Hal. It might have been Hal or, or, or Gary Coleman, you know, one of them. <laughs> All right. But working with a guy like Brian Wilson back then, I mean, he was one of the top geniuses of the era. Tell us what it was like to work with him. Okay. You're going to love the story I'm going to tell you now. We're doing good vibrations. Brian was the only one that, that knew where that song was going. Everything was in his head. And we're there to accompany what the direction he's going in. We don't know. We're there doing our parts. 
three months on one song. And I wasn't the old, Mike Melbourne came in, I think Larry, Leon, we did different sections, but we were all were there playing different things as, as the song was developing. Now we're in the studio, we're in there for almost nine hours, Studio 3 at Western, and there's baffles in front of me, so Brian can't see me. I'm playing the Hammond B3, but I'm not playing. I'm holding my foot on a bass pedal. Oh, whole thing. And he's orchestrating on top of that, figuring out a part where the vocal is going to go. And we had been playing almost nine hours, ten hours at that point. He says, just a second. I don't need the guys. I just need Don. Can everybody else go out of the room? You know, so Hal gets up, the rest of the guys, they're out in the hallway. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, my eyes are, I'm falling asleep. I can't, you know, I'm a whole, I just with my foot. And I look next to me, there's a pillow. So I grabbed the pillow and I lay down with my head on, on the foot pedal of, of the Hammond B3 and I'm holding it, the, the note down. Brian doesn't know that I'm doing that because he can't see me. And I fall asleep. I fell asleep holding it for at least 10 minutes. And all of a sudden I hear click, click. And it, Brian, Don, thanks. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> The only one that saw it was Hal Blaine, and Hal says to me, did you have a nice nap? <laughs> and I said, I did. But Brian didn't know about this till about five years ago. That is so funny. And someone told him the story, and he didn't believe it. And he called me. He says, Don, someone just told me a story. Did that really happen? I said, you're damn right it did. So you're announcing for the first time ever that you you were snoring in the middle of good <laughs> vibrations. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, stuff like that, you know, it's a rarity. And and thank God it was me that, that I did it and I can tell the story. Oh, man, what a great story. And, and you know, all those songs, Help Me Rhonda. I go to see Leon, Leon Russell. And afterwards, I, I we I went back and sat with him. I hadn't seen him in about twenty years, and and we was talking. He says, "You know, you know, I played on Help Me, Rhonda." I said, "No, you didn't. I played on it. It was only one piano." He says, "No, no, I did," and he starts to laugh. He did another version of it before mine, and Brian's father hated the song and didn't and put it on the shelf. So after Brian's dad passed away, Murray who was an asshole, after he passed away, Brian came, we went in the studio and everything was written out. And and, and it was the one of the first times that I, uh, a Brian Wilson song was totally written out. And we played it, it's in G flat, it's a, not an easy key. And we, we go through it and I, we went through it a couple of times and I said, man, this is a stone cold hit. I knew it was. And sure enough, it came out and it was a hit, but he had done it before. And he kept he kept laughing about it because I didn't know Brian had recorded it before. In the Smile album, there's two versions of that song. One of them is Leon's version, and one of them is my version. So the hit was your version, huh? 
Yeah, that hit the hit one was. Yeah. All right. That's the one that counts. All right. Let's do one more. These are great stories. I could go on all day with you. Let's do I Got You, Babe, Sonny and Cher's first big hit. Two chord changes. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't Sonny and Cher. All right. I, I knew we were going to get something. Tell us about that. Caesar and Cleo. Don't you remember when they first came out? They weren't Sonny and Cher. Oh, I didn't know that story. They were Caesar and Cleo. That's when they used to have the bangs and they would wear yeah, yeah, the yeah. fur vests. And that, that was it. Caesar and then they became Sonny and Cher after the first record. <laughs> you mean to say they put out I Got You, Babe, as Caesar and Cleo? That's right. I didn't know that. Yeah. See, I'm learning so much with you. This is like a, a rock and roll education. What a fantastic Listen, interview. Listen, I, I took Cher in, a uh, guy drops her off in the back of Gold Star. He says, this is Cher. I, I called Phil. She's going to sit in the booth. Just take her in there. And this poor little 16-year-old, 17-year-old, little gorgeous little girl had to take her. Come on with me. And I took her and I said, sit here. And, and I showed her where to sit. And she ended up singing on stuff. And you know, the rest is history. What can I tell you? All right. Well, listen, we've gotten one heck of a rock and roll history with you. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking here with the great Don Randy. And Don, this is just a spectacular interview to, to hear all of this history, these great songs that you are a part of. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Oh, uh, thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. We're going to listen now to that song of mine that started off the uh, the episode. It's a song called My Baby. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com.
said I want to see my baby tonight. I said I want to see my baby tonight.